observations, weather apps, and listener emails on episode 367 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for everyone who likes going out under the stars. I will give this warning at the start. I did about six hours of observing last night and am a little bit tired this morning. Did you get any observing in this past week? No, it's been a rough week uh, work-wise and with some social commitments. Most of my evenings were chewed up and uh, it was a little windy too uh, earlier in the week, which doesn't bode well for any kind of telescope observing. There there were a couple nights, like I think Tuesday night I was free, um, but the wind was just too much, so I didn't bother. How about you? Yeah, I've done been uh, working on a binocular project to sketch all the messiers in the 12 by 36 binoculars. So I've been plugging away at that. Okay. Mostly because the observatory is still in progress and I was looking for something to do. Mike came out on Sunday, last Sunday with his reflector and it was uh, fairly windy at first, but pretty warm. I think it was like 14 or 15 when he arrived and there was quite a bit of wind, but it's really not that bad when it's like in the teens, even if you had that kind of wind. So we, uh, he set up the the 12 inch and the wind abated, but it got cold. It was a little bit chilly by the time he left around whenever it was midnight or so. And I, we took a long look at uh, NGC 7331, the Deerlick group there up just off of uh, Pegasus. Oh yeah. Yep. So that was pretty good. Did a sketch of that. Uh, we took a good look at M15, did a sketch of that, and NGC 891, and did a sketch of that. And then uh, he was looking at some other stuff. I don't know what he looked at. I did a sketch of M34 in my binoculars. And then Monday I got up, did a half hour in the morning. It was really windy. And like you said, Tuesday was really windy. And I just used binoculars from the deck and try not to get blown around too much and did sketches of M103, M76, M31, 32, 110, M73 and 72, and 71 and 27. Then I did a couple other sketches and sketched M13, M92, M57, M56, M74. So just kind of peeling my way through. It only takes about five or six minutes to sketch one of the messies and the binoculars. And yeah, but it was really, really windy though. Like it was no joke. I think it was 50 gusting to 70 here. And yeah, that's pretty intense. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I was like just sitting on the deck sort of trying to get something between me and the wind, like a bush or tree or whatever, and kind of orientating myself. But it was plus five, but it was, I think it was minus five with the wind. So that's how windy it was. Even at plus five, it was, it was darn cold. Thursday was awesome though. Um, it cleared up around 930 or so. Hadn't planned to observe, happened to be out here and man, it was really good. So I've been waiting for a good night to sketch M45 because I knew if I got it on a good night, I'd probably be able to see the nebulae there around Marope and maybe some of the others. And uh, I sketched it unaided eye and I was able to see 11 stars in the Pleiades unaided eye. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really, really good. And then... With the binoculars, I think I, I I have it here. I don't know where it is. I meant to have these with me when I was doing this. But um, I think I had 60 stars in the binoculars and was able to get, I think, four or five of the nebulae around the uh, the brighter stars there. And it looked like bluish with, with a bird of vision, like it really had sort of that blue cast to it. Chris, that was through the binoculars? Yeah, through the 12 oh, by wow. 36s. Yeah. Okay. I I waited for the night to do it. I didn't just, I'd been observing it. I've done a lot of observing of M45 over the years and I've seen the nebulae many times. And I kind of knew based on what I was seeing in the binoculars, I should be able to get the nebulae. And, and so it wasn't just like a random night I went out and was like, boom, there's the nebula. <laughs> it was, no, no. I waited for the specific night, waited for it to be high up. Um, it was absolutely the clearest, the most transparent sky that I've seen in, in years for like two hours. And that night, I decided not to do as many messiers. So I did the California Nebula, and I did the Veil and the North American Nebula, and the Star Chain in the middle of Cygnus from Terrence Dickinson's Night Watch. And then I did M77, which I knew would be a tough uh, galaxy there in Cetus. And that was easy that night, even though it was 
not that that high up yet and it was sort of over the city glow it was so clear and transparent and it, it was uh pretty easy up to that point i, I had done 47 messes since uh, september 7th so in just basically a month and a week or two uh have had done about half of them and are you mounting the binoculars when you sketch or just sort of to your eyes and then down and and uh like, what's your process look like well, that's a good point because I've I've learned a lot about binocular observing and doing this. With these binoculars, I thought that they worked a little bit better freehand than the 15 by 50s, but it's a bit of an illusion. It's only because you don't have the 3x magnification. And if you want to see things like how you see them in the 15 by 50s when you're seated, you still have to sit. You absolutely have to sit and you have to support yourself. So I was experimenting with the veil nebula and there's that, I think the Eastern portion, the brighter portion, anyway, the one not near 52 sig, uh, anyway, the brighter portion, you could just barely see it seated, but not fully supported. Like if your head was up and your arms were up a bit, but when you totally relaxed into the chair and like supported yourself, your head, your arms, everything fully supported, you could then see like Pickering's triangle and the other portion down by the star. And and they work just as good as the 15 by 50s, but you absolutely have to, you just have to support yourself as as much. Now for freehand and walk around, they they are much easier because you know they're just so much lighter. But if you want to make similar observations, you still need to support yourself. Uh, just as much. Interesting. One thing I did is I I've I've moved to uh, sketching in ink as well to sketch faster. Okay. Um, how does that make it faster? Because you don't need to sharpen the pencils. Ah. Uh-huh. And the tips are less likely to break. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So I'm using this white gel that Berta Beltran had recommended. I. I've had it for a while. I've used it a bit, but I think up until this point, my sketching just wasn't good enough. You know, you make a wrong move with ink. You're like, you don't, there's no erasing. Like that's it. Like you've made the, you've made the mark and it dries exceptionally fast, even on a cold night. And the way that white gel ink works is that it sits on top of the paper. It doesn't soak into the paper. And I just like the look. It almost just gives it like this extra pop. It's really cool. And then what you can do because it dries so fast is if you do want to put any kind of nebulae or smudging or whatever else in and amongst those stars, it's dry virtually, you know, within 15 seconds. So by the time you're done and ready to move on to smudge work, uh, it's already good. So it works well for my process. And I just find with a pen, I, I for some reason, I find like I can plot much faster and it's a little bit more consistent. But again, it's it's unforgiving, you know, so... Yeah. And I wonder how that will perform like when it gets really cold out, because I've noticed in the past, like I always use a pen to record my observing notes and during the colder temperatures, like that pen ink will like essentially freeze up. And then I would have to warm it up in my hand to get things to flow, but maybe it's different inks or something that, uh, you know, maybe you won't run into that. Well, yeah, we'll see. It hasn't. So I've been sketching down to zero and it hasn't yet. The other thing is, is that I don't wear gloves when I sketch. So by the time it's freezing, my hand's going to freeze. I can keep it. I just keep it inside or keep it. I keep it in my pocket until I'm using it. So I'm keeping it inside. I pull the pen out. I use it for a few minutes and then stick it back in my pocket and then do my smudging. So like I'm kind of, I kind of have a system for keeping it warm and I have a pouch, like I have a canvas pouch that all this stuff fits in. And so it, it has sort of a few layers of uh of protection and then as well like my my place like i'm sitting here at my kitchen table right now and where i'm observing is six feet away from here so hopping in and warming stuff up is uh, pretty easy i also have two pens that i use so i can even switch to the other pen if if i want so but by the time that ink is frozen then my hand's probably going to be frozen so i I think i'll be all right Maybe I'll, maybe I'll be done. Maybe I'll be done what I need to do by then. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. We'll see. Did you get a view at the, uh, ring of fire eclipse? Not, not, uh, you know, through my own optics or anything like that. Um, the, uh, the, the, I guess probably about half of our province or like sort of a, I guess the quarter of our province was under cloud and it just so happened we were 
almost right in the middle of that. So, um, uh, I probably would have had to drive over an hour, I think, to get to some clear skies in order to observe it. And, um, I sort of had a, a narrow window of freedom, uh, before some other obligations hit me yesterday <laughs> afternoon. So, uh, driving much more than an hour really wasn't um, an option for me. So as such, I just looked at some of the photographs that other people captured of the event. So uh, a lot of great photographs came out um, from all over the US and, and some Canadian observers as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, pretty cool. How about you? Yeah, um, totally cloudy here. You could see, like, I think I could see like the clear like bit, like very, very like slim thing of clearness on the horizon. I thought, oh, maybe it will because originally it was supposed to clear or be clearing off by sunrise, which you know, if it was clearing and by sunrise, like it did eventually clear at like noon or whatever, it would have been fine. But uh, no, it just kind of stayed like pretty stationary until uh, until after the eclipse was well over by a couple hours. So I told the neighbor was, was asking me about it. So I, I told her that uh, she was welcome to come up and watch it. I had some of these eclipse glasses and uh, it was totally cloudy, but she came up anyway. Cause she was wondering like if, if I had a way of viewing it, maybe some special way. And my special way was a uh, NASA live feed. So I had that on the, the TV and uh, I said, yeah, come on in. And so she, she came in and, and hung out. We watched it uh, with my wife on the, uh, on the television, just basically uh, live stream. And it was pretty cool to see, you know, that full uh, ring of fire, but um, Richard, who is a listener of ours in Edmonton, he sent us a spectacular photo and you could see um, from Edmonton looks like uh, maybe it was about, what was that about 40% covered or give or take Shane, something like yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, go with that. And and he captured some of the fine uh, details, like some feculae and some. There's a sunspot there. Looks like there's some sort of prominence or something on near the rim. And and you couldn't see those details in the live stream. The live stream, really, to me anyway, at least I watched two streams. I guess uh, there's some other stream that I was watching, and and you could see it, but it didn't have the fine details. I think uh, well, Richard is uh, phenomenal, phenomenal. Uh, solar astro or solar imager. And, uh, I think he's able to kind of tease out some different details that maybe, uh, what they are when they're just live streaming. It would have been nice if they had, I don't know, been able to intersperse some of these sort of images a little bit more. Maybe they did and we were just chatting and I missed them. Uh, I don't know, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of neat to see anyway. Hmm. Yeah. Um, there was a, there was a few photos that I saw like where other people were dealing with the clouds. Um, and it just so happened that the clouds almost provided the perfect level of filtering to, oh, to wow. observe it, uh, without any sort of proper solar filter, which, you know, is a little dangerous, I suppose, cause you never know when that cloud density might change, but, uh, it, it made for some interesting images. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would imagine that it might be okay to image, but I would never look at the sun at all unaided eye because uh, clouds will not filter our EV. <laughs> so that's, I, I've heard of people talking about this and I'm like, well, you, you, yeah, you can't because it doesn't filter at the UV. You need something that filters out UV somehow. So, all right. Um, weather tools. Mm -hmm. What were you thinking about weather tools, Shane? What weather tools do you use? How do you use them? How, like, like when do you use them? Why do you use them? What's the story with weather tools? Well, I, you know, you and I lately have been, you know, texting back and forth about observing and trying to figure out what the weather will be. And, and this is really just, I think any, uh, amateur astronomers life, um, as you're trying to determine whether or not you should even take the telescope out or open the lid on a dome or whatever it might be, you're looking at the clouds and, you know, probably wind and maybe other conditions like temperature to figure out whether or not you should observe. Um, now if it's just, should I go out in 30 minutes, that one's a little easier to determine because you can probably walk outside, look at the sky and, uh, probably figure out real quick whether you will get an observing session in. But if you're thinking about, you know, tonight or, um, you know, tomorrow or next weekend, um, that's a whole different, you know, ball game, I suppose, in terms of, you know, like accuracy, uh, at least for me, you know, I'm always wanting to know with the greatest level of accuracy, whether or not, 
uh, I'll be able to observe. And then I make my plans, you know, whether I'm observing or maybe doing other things. And I just mm -hmm. thought we'd have a, a quick chat about some of the tools that you and I use sure. or resources that we use to try to figure out if the weather's going to allow us uh, any kind of astronomy. All right. You've got more tools than I do. Um, but uh, can I can I say this one? This is from a listener. They sent this to me and I've been, this is my go-to tool now. Mm. Yeah, go for it. Start, start with this just because I, I can't remember who sent it. So my apologies. It was one of those things where um didn't really register with me at the time. And then a few days later, I was just thinking about like checking the weather. And I was like, wait a sec, that tool was awesome. Like, why did I bookmark that? So to like go through all the emails, grab it. And it's called zoom.earth. So just Z-O-O-M dot E-A-R-T-H. And what makes it so good is that it has um, several layers to it. One is a live satellite picture. And I think the stream goes back 10 or 12 hours or something like that. So it actually shows you where the current clouds are and where the current clearing is. It also shows like, um, it's it's a real satellite image. So it will show like smoke plumes and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's why this tool to me is so handy because some of the other tools and modeling won't show you the smoke some will show you the smoke some will show you the clouds but uh the only the satellite images kind of uh merge them well together so this this is one of those that does work uh pretty good for doing that and uh as well it has a uh, radar precipitation wind temperature humidity and pressure and I like that because before I was using um, a few different apps. I was using some of the GOES satellite, which this may be GOES images as well, which is which is fine. And I'm sure it is because it's NOAA, which which is, oh, and it is. It is from the GOES, it says at the bottom. Um, and that's fine. But I was using like different uh, pieces of software because to me, the two things that I'm using the most, um, because I have a dark sky site, I basically just come out here and then I'm trying to figure out my sessions um more so than whether or not i'm going to be going to observe or setting up it's like how am i going to be doing it versus whether i'm going to be doing it because i've sort of bought the ticket i'm taking the ride so with this i can see what's actually happening i can flip to the to the wind i can see what the wind is what the upcoming wind is see the temperature trends and then uh, the precipitation this was the thing that i was using the least that i started using the most because the precipitation um tool on this is uh, excellent for forecasting clear skies. And it, it's integrated in there, but it's not obvious. You kind of have to flip on the precipitation tool and then you can scroll through the um, next, whatever it is, 14 or 18 hours or something, or maybe even two days, I forget. It's, it's a good period of time. And by hovering over your, your location, you can see how much cloud cover there is based on the precipitation model and whether or not the skies are gonna be clear or not. I, I didn't get this at first. I was like, oh, that's cool. You can see if it's raining or whatever. And then when it was raining, I was hovering over and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then as I progressed through one day and I kept hovering over the same spot, it said clear skies. And I was like, oh, this actually integrates like a bit of a clear sky forecast as well. So it the, the disadvantage, it doesn't really go really that far into the future or really that far into the past, or at least I haven't figured that portion out yet. Um, but it, it's really good for determining like, is it going to be clear tonight? And how clear is it? When are the clouds moving in? How fast is the wind going to be? What's the temperature going to be throughout the night? Uh, it's it's a really, really nice tool for that. Mm, okay. Yeah, I'm not super familiar with this one. Um, I'll definitely have to play around with this. Uh, it is It is nice to have the satellite imagery for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, depending on what people are doing, everybody's different, right? Everybody plans their sessions a little bit differently. And, and again, my apologies, because I can't remember who it was that sent it, but whoever that is must plan in a similar way that I do, because this is super handy for how I do, uh, how I do my sessions. And I certainly have seen lots of, lots of tools as well, but Shane, you, you've got one that you've, and, and I can't remember what it's called, but you've shared it with me in the past where it does a pretty good job of like predicting uh, clear skies and that sort of thing. What, what tool was that? Well, I use two uh, primarily. Uh, maybe I'll stick with one that's purpose built for astronomy, and it's called Astrophoric. Oh, that's um, it. yeah, yeah, and it 
it's sort of like that clear sky chart uh, that I think a lot of people are familiar with. Um, it shows you, you know, these color bars of seeing transparency and cloud cover. Um, and it goes out quite a ways and it also weaves in smoke, uh, temperatures, moon. Uh, it'll show the ISS uh, transits mm. if there's any for your location, dew points, uh, temperature predictions, a um, whole bunch of stuff. And then like lunar cycles and, you know, it, it, there's a it, there's an awful lot of resources uh, uh, available just w- within this app. And you're able to like turn on the different layers of uh, forecast models or turn them off uh, just to get a better sense of what you might be dealing with. Um, and what, um, what I like about this, or maybe just a preface here before we get too deep into any particular tool, uh, like there's various weather models or forecast models out there that all of these apps basically use. And they all have their pros and cons, and they can all sometimes deliver different results or different forecasts. And um, one thing that I really like about Astrospheric with uh, cloud cover is it. So just is it Astrospheric or Astrospheric? Or do you uh, not say the S? Astrospheric? Uh, yeah, it's Astrospheric. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. And um, I'm on uh, here now. So okay. I mean, yeah. Yeah, no I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out how do I get it because it's defaulting to Vancouver. I have nothing against Vancouver, um, but I, I don't observe there. <laughs> I'm trying to get out of that bit. Is this a website like, or, or the app? It's the uh, website. Yeah, oh, you yeah, must not, do you download not, the app. Do you? Yeah, yeah. I just have the app, so I'm not right, too I'll familiar do that. with the site. I'll do that while you're explaining it. Yeah. Sure. So um, one thing that I like about this is it has three different cloud forecast models and in its display, it shows you what each one is predicting, you know, either clear skies or cloud. And what you really want to look for is alignment between these models. Um, If all three are basically saying the same thing, then your level of confidence should be pretty high in that forecast. If they're saying like, you know, I'm looking at it right now, actually for tonight, one model is saying no clouds at all. One model is saying cloudy tonight for our location. Uh, and then the other one is saying partly cloudy for our location. So, oh. you know, I'm I'm kind of leaning towards tonight may not be a wonderful night for observing, but hard to say, um, you know, as one model is indicating that uh, things should be okay. Um, so that's one of the things I do like about Astrophoric is that it, it shows that um, the, the three models that it has for cloud co- cover, uh, for forecasting is N, N as in Nancy, B as in Bob, M as in mother. Uh, and then the other one is NAM, uh, N-A-M. And then the other one is GFS. Um, and the GFS is probably one of the more popular ones out there. Like a lot of weather apps will use a GFS predictive model to, well, predict all aspects of weather. Um, uh, but the thing is, is, is you know, I, I think that a lot of weather enthusiasts would agree that there's probably more accurate forecast models uh, to use. And this is where my second tool comes into play, which is uh, just windy.com. And it's kind of similar to the one that you talked about, Chris, uh, zoom.earth. Um, there's a whole bunch of layers. You can toggle satellite to radar. Um, but what I really, really like about this one is uh, you can also toggle your uh, forecast model. And what's kind of neat about that is they have um, probably like three or four, well, actually there's a whole bunch, but they have some of the ones that are considered to be, you know, like the most accurate. Um, So one of them is uh, the ECMWF, which is the, uh, uh, an acronym for European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts. Now, while you're complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while European is in the title, it is a global forecast model oh, Okay. and it's a mid range model. So this is a real good one to look out, you know, say three to five days into the future and get a bit of an idea, you know, if the upcoming weekend will be okay. Um, so I use this one quite a bit because of that model. Um, and what's interesting is that forecast model, um, is not in a lot of weather apps because apparently the data set like to acquire it is fairly expensive. So that's why you just don't see that one a lot. Um, but windy.com just provides that, uh, to any user. So, you know, it's available. Um, and again, it, it's a fairly high, high degree of, of accuracy. Um, but it also has two other models, uh, the NAM and the H triple R. 
Um, and these two are for more short-term views. The NAM does a forecast out uh, two and a half days and the HRRR uh, goes out one and a half days. And um, the HRRR is updated hourly and it's um, the scale of it is really good. It's three square kilometers, which is uh, uh, better than I think pretty much any other model uh, that I've talked about anyway. And it's often it's often the most accurate cloud cover forecast for say the next 12 to 24 hours. Um, so like last night or sorry, I guess, uh, Friday night when I went to bed, uh, the HRRR showed the exact cloud cover that we had the next morning. Like it showed mm -hmm. that we would be under cloud and it showed that if we wanted clear skies, we would have to go to the West, uh, probably past, you know, Moose Jaw, maybe getting into the swift current area. And uh, it also showed that cloud moving out kind of in that early afternoon area, which is exactly what happened. Yeah. And, uh, so I put a lot of faith into that HRRR, uh, especially for like that short-term stuff. So if it's the morning and I want to see if I have a shot at observing tonight, uh, that's the one that I'm going to use. And, uh, you know, if I can reach into that sort of 18 hour window, um, for tomorrow, I'll, I'll start using it even to plan tomorrow night, whether or not I'm able to observe. Mm -hmm. So windy.com, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it because it really has everything. Like it has all of these different forecast models that you can toggle. You can turn on radar or satellite. Um, and then it just has a pile of layers there that you can toggle on and off, whether or not you want smoke. Um, I don't want smoke. No, I, <laughs> um, but like, I'm just going to pull it up here. I should have. Yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking at it here now. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, like I just got the wind now. There's, there's, oh, there's, there's like a forty thing. some. There's like forty some layers here, you know, that you oh, can turn on and off. Low clouds, cloud base. Yeah, nautical oh, wow. stuff like swells. If you're into that, but um, anyway, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of information there, and um, I really really like this one for yeah, trying to see where mm. I can observe and when. Yeah, I'm just uh, playing it through here. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. It is. This one is not unlike the uh, uh, Zoom dot Earth. It, there's some similarities here. For sure. Yeah, there definitely is. If you, I assume you're on the windy.com website. If yeah, you yeah, I'm on, taking a look. Yeah. yeah. If you click on clouds, then at the very bottom, you should see like bottom right, uh, you should see EC, MF or MWF. Uh, which is that kind of mid-range forecast, but you can click on that H triple R. Okay. Um, oh yeah. You click on the two more. There's the NAM. So, you know, again, HRR is about a day and a half out, and NAM is two and a half days. And those oh, two I give see. you more accurate localized forecasts. And then you can play it out on the bottom left. It looks like it will give you like. I see it's like churning through here. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind of choppy though. Oh yeah. Yeah. A little, it depends to which model you're on because the HRR should go almost by hour. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. It kind of goes and then loads and then goes and then it must be, it must be generating these like in real time or something, but it's yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. Yeah. yeah huh. it's, well, I may use that one. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I like that. That's pretty. Yeah. I think it's using the same as the other, but this actually shows the clouds versus just where the precipitation is. Yeah. That's neat. I like that. Very cool. Yeah. And, and I like that they are upfront about which weather forecast models they're using. Um, because again, some of these forecast models won't even like, you won't even be told what, what the reference data is. Um, and some of them use their own sort of in-house uh, forecast model that they've developed like the the clear sky chart is based on a forecast model that i believe uh, a person within environment canada created and um alan rahill data comes from a forecast model developed by alan rahill uh, from the canadian meteorological center huh. so um you know that that then also has yet another twist to it i suppose and i'm you know i'm not sure uh what what alan does to that data or or what but you know that's another resource that um people can use the the clear sky chart you know it it's it's pretty handy and it has a lot of locations in it too hmm. that's cool yeah i like that uh one one that i use 
is that uh, has some of this data. If I'm just looking for really good wind details, because here on the prairies, wind can be, <laughs> and at times, wind can be the enemy more than the clouds. And we've seen that this past week where we've had lots of clear skies, but there has been like um, half the time where it's been rather windy. And uh, using the windfinder.com uh, soft mm-hmm. uh, site is uh, is pretty good as as well. So I I like the clear sky clock still. I had one put in out here, and it it's it's pretty good. But again, it's just uh, I think it's like having a lot of these these different tools. I, again, mostly I'm just using the current satellite because I'm just like, okay, when when's it going to clear? Can I get up and uh, and go out at uh, 5 a.m. these these days? You know, I got up at 5 a.m. this morning, looked out, and there was some wonky clouds up there this morning. It was clear-ish in spots. It would have been really good for planetary. It was really still, but. Uh, yeah, there was like this strange, huge contrail. I don't know what the story was with that, but it was going right through M46 and M47, which were my targets. So I looked at the sky for 30 seconds outside, walked back in, went back to bed. Oh, I'm yawning. Sorry. <laughs> Anything else with, with the weather tools that uh, you have there, Shane? The, maybe the only other thing I would say is like if it's, um, say, 7 p.m. and I want to know if I can go out on and observe within the next 30 minutes, um, I'll usually just look at the satellite images, uh, to see where the cloud is and if mm. it's moving in my direction, you don't really need any of these fancy forecast models for like immediate term, uh, just sort of look at the sky or look at the satellite and, uh, satellite imagery and then determine whether or not you, you know, you think if it's going to, if the cloud will reach you or not. Um, and, and that's, you know, that that's probably the most effective for like, again, the, the immediate observing sessions. Yeah, every area is different. The one thing I find here, which which uh, used to impact me more than than it does now, I get used to it. Is uh, sometimes the clouds, especially like those high cirrus clouds, can be relatively stationary. And you know, coming from out east, if you see like a big, like some big wisp of clouds, and even like you look on the satellite images, and and it's significant. Um, you don't bother. You just don't bother going out because if those are there as it's getting close to dusk, well, by the time it's dark, those are those are right overhead. And maybe if you're looking at Saturn or Jupiter or something or the Moon, you're you're going to have a view, but um, it's it's going to basically wreck your your observing. Usually, like like the vast majority of the time, such that you, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't go observing most of the time. Uh, but here, I find they can just stall out. Like the other night. There was these huge wisps of clouds and they impacted about, I'm going to say about 15, yeah, coming in from the West. And they just sat there and they sat there all night. I observed and then I got up in the morning and they were, they had moved just a little bit to the South and again, still impacting um, maybe just about 15, less than 20% of the sky. So the rest of the sky was totally good, decent, you know, great for observing, um, just these big clouds just really didn't uh, come overhead and, and impact things too much. The other thing is here, like yesterday, we saw it clear out and the clouds just evaporated. And uh, I think just because it's it can be so dry here that uh, if the sun and the wind and all that stuff lines up, and, and it often does here, it can just sort of break the clouds right apart. And they can look pretty funky. They almost look like... Uh, little noctilucent clouds as they were sort of evaporating in these uh, big rows. It was pretty cool. Interesting. All right. Shall we move on to a couple listener emails? Sure. Um, Chris wrote us an email. Do you want to take a read of sure. that one? Yeah. Uh, so he said, I must admit, I don't make a practice of checking upon resources like the observer's handbook before going observing especially when the evening is unexpectedly clear as it was last night, which was October 12th. Uh, when I first thought about going out, Jupiter was below my neighbor's roof. When I actually went out at 9.30, it had just barely gotten above the rooftop and seeing was muddy. So I concentrated on Saturn and a few other better placed objects. Around 10.15, uh, with Jupiter now well up, I turned back uh, to it. Seeing had gotten a bit better, and I was able to see several cloud bands, but the south polar area looked a bit odd. Uh, When seeing improved momentarily, I saw a small black dot at about Mm. 70 or 80 degrees south latitude. 
and concluded that I might be viewing a shadow transit. Subsequent checking with the uh, with the Project Pluto website shows a, Gan a Ganymede shadow transit starting at 155 UTC on October 13th, which works out to 2155 uh, EDT on October 12th. So that fits. However, I've been unable to verify the location of this shadow transit on the face of Jupiter. So I'm wondering if you or any of the other listeners also viewed this apparent transit. And I don't know. I did not. Chris, were you uh, looking at that? I'm not running a Jupiter campaign right now. I'm just doing deep sky. So no, I uh, I didn't. I my my views of Jupiter are limited to like five seconds through the binoculars. Mm, okay. Um, you know, something else that uh, could be done to confirm this is just to run your planetarium software. You know, zoom in on Jupiter. Uh, like Sky Safari will show you know, those transits, uh, as they occurred, uh, to give you an idea of, of the positioning or, or to validate the observation. I'm just going to grab my book, but keep reading. Okay. So, uh, as an interesting note, when I checked on cloudy nights, I couldn't find any observations of this apparent transit, but it does appear that at some point in November, Ganymede itself is going to transit the Southern polar area of Jupiter. That might be one uh, for folks to look into. If true, it would make a really interesting observation. In my experience, moon transits tend to be more in the mid-latitudes. Um, also, in the most recent episode, you discussed how old or how the old 0.965-inch glass solar filters can fracture. Well, I quite literally had one blow up in my face when I was observing the sun as a teenager with a four inch Tasco reflector. I had the aperture mask uh, down, but when I went to look into the eyepiece, there was a loud crack and a blinding flash. Uh, this is kind of scary. Um, oh, yeah. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't see out of my right eye for several minutes and I had a large flash bulb like image on my vision for a good half hour later. Fortunately, uh, though the filter split right down the middle, uh, my eye had no lasting effects. It sure put me off solar observing though. Uh, from now on, uh, either eclipse goggles or pinhole camera for me once nearly blinded twice shy. <laughs> and when I read that Chris, for the first time, a few days ago there, I was, uh, I was like, Oh no, <laughs> but yeah. at least it ended without any, uh, long-term damage. I I've heard of this happening to several people who tried using those old filters. And you think about it, this, like, fortunately it was just a crack. Right. And think about that. And, and that's what I've heard from uh, several people is a similar experience where it just cracked or in, in many instances, they happened to be away from the eyepiece when it, when it cracked and, uh, and then they, they, uh, you know, were able to see that there was a lot more light spilling out of the, uh, out of the eyepiece and so it didn't look in. Um, but yeah, it's very dangerous. Yeah. People have to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, last paragraph uh, from Chris is that, uh, or goes as such, uh, funny caution about solar observing with a telescope, always cover the objective of your finder scope. Uh, this is a great tip. Um, I was viewing the sun one day, uh, way back when, and wondered why I smelled burning plastic. Turned out the sun's rays cause, or the sun's rays caused the uh, plastic baffle on which the crosshairs were mounted to melt. Uh, after that, my finder view was more like a jagged oval than a, a circle. Jeez. Well, mm -hmm. and, and you know, the other part of that about capping your finder, um, like if you have a straight through finder and that thing isn't capped and pointed at the sun, you know, it's going to focus that sun all the way through and, you're you know, again, hole in the ground or you're well, maybe at the top of your head. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're, you'll certainly feel the heat if you get anywhere near that, but yeah. also just, you know, like the potential to damage your mm -hmm. eyes, uh, is certainly, mm -hmm. uh, there as well. So yeah, definitely cap your finder and, uh, you know, that's, uh, uh, a great tip and something that we should add to our little solar observing tips and tricks whenever we talk about it. Yeah. Peter sent us uh, an email, Shane. I think he was referencing some of your uh, stuff here. Peter wrote, hi, Chris and Shane. Thanks for the tip about the Teleview equalizer. I've previously found it frustrating in switching between two inch and one quarter inch eyepieces while trying to keep the telescope balanced. So Shane, just maybe a bit of, review, of a review there from your end. Uh, what is the Teleview equalizer and uh, how does it work? What's, what's its advantage? Yeah. So it, it really looks like pretty much any standard two inch to one and a quarter inch adapter that, you know, you put in your focuser. 
or, or in your diagonal to allow you to, you, you know, go between two inch and one and a quarter inch eyepieces. The difference with the Teleview equalizer is the weight of it. Um, like a lot of these adapters are fairly lightweight. I think they're typically made of aluminum uh, and they work well for the purpose. But if you're going from a heavy two inch to a light inch and a quarter, you suddenly now have balance problems with your telescope. Um, so what this thing does is it's made of brass. It's very heavy and it kind of has the weight of a big two inch eyepiece. So if you're taking out that heavy two inch eyepiece, you put this thing in with your inch and a quarter and your telescope is still balanced, um, is really the intent here. So it is a, a very uninspiring, simplistic piece of gear that, uh, really improves your quality of life. If you're switching between two inch and inch and a quarter eyepieces. Cool. Uh, he goes on to say, inspired by the episode with Mark Radici, I decided to have a crack at uh, electronically assisted astronomy, EAA. My equipment for this was the uh, Astrotech 60ED, a 0.8 reducer, and a ASI 294MC Pro camera. I used a ZWOAM5 mount, and he took this great photo here of, uh, I guess, the objects he was uh, looking at with the EAA uh, M31, uh, the double cluster, the uh, Seder um, nebula, uh, which is around the the middle star in uh, Cygnus, uh, California nebula M42, Flame and Horsehead, North America, Heart and Soul, and Triangulum Galaxy. Oh, that's pretty good. And you can see all those. It's kind of like uh, sort of like short exposure ish. Uh, Astro images is kind of what it looks like. Yeah, yeah, pretty neat. Um, yeah, I'm just sort of moving all the notes around here. Uh, he goes on to say the implementation of EAA on the ZWO ASI Air using the live stack feature is especially convenient in that you can preload and prepare calibration frames that are used in the live stack. I use 10 second frames stacked over 10 minutes to create the images which are presented in a mosaic in the display uh, that we were just talking about. With the exception of M31, M42 and the double cluster, you wouldn't see much of these targets visually from my backyard. My equipment for this was the AT, uh, I think I read, read what he was using, which is basically AstroTech 60 and and the uh, ZWO and ASI uh, gear. He was also using OptoLong L Pro filter. Um, says this is a wider field setup than Mark Radici was using. And he was in a Bortle 6, backyard uh in the south of phoenix arizona Ooh, must be nice down there mm-hmm. um probably not not going to get too much snow this winter uh i found it fun to watch the image develop in front of me and it was a very nice way to survey the sky uh, for a couple hours on the other hand uh, the eaa is very different from visual observations through the eyepiece seeing your target appear in an eyepiece is a special experience that is just not the same when done with a camera but eaa is its own thing and, and another approach to the hobby especially for the dso's that are not easy to see from uh, light polluted backyards yeah sounds good all right yeah, that's that's pretty neat that somebody went out and and tried that. So I guess you can sort of take different setups and then and then run the EAA stuff uh, through uh, different cameras and such. I'm really I really don't know how it all works. Although Mark explained it all quite nicely, I I have been up most of the night too, so maybe it's that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, uh, Leonard Road. Yeah, we ended. Do you want me to read you that can, one? You can, yeah. So he says, hi, Chris and Sean. I'm never sure Sean or Shane. Uh, I think Shane. it's because I think it's because I always say his name wrong. <laughs> maybe he's jibing me a bit. I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe. Uh, I do get called Sean 25% of the time in the really? So Yeah, it's a weird thing. I don't know. I don't know. So you don't people, look like a Sean. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I go by Shane and, and sometimes not surprised if I get called Sean. Hey, you. Yeah, that works too. Uh, I've certainly been called worse. Um, Leonid continues on here. He says, uh, last Friday afternoon on a hunch, I passed by La Maison Astronomie. Uh, I got a little fancy there. I don't know if you, you picked did. up on that, Chris. You yeah. put an extra 
something in there. Yeah, I'm not sure that's. Uh, I've been there. That's a, that that's again. a nice astronomy store. That was one of the first astronomy stores I went to. I, I think it was the second astronomy store I went to because I have relatives in uh, in Quebec and and I was up there visiting and made my voyage over there. Nice store. Mike goes there sometimes too when he's working in Quebec. Yeah, I've ordered a few things from there too. Uh, yeah. Never had a bad experience. It's, it's always yeah. good. Anyway, so he says uh, he went there to see if the uh, Bader Planetarium 2-inch O3 filter finally came in and walked out with a Lumicon O3 and an astronomic UHC E filter um, with no, or sorry, with a number 15 Lumicon color filter and two neutral density filters, a 50 and a 25 uh, for cheaper than the uh, Bader Planetarium one new. So I think these were maybe used filters, it looks like. I'm not sure, but it uh, it's a pretty good haul nonetheless. Uh, that's yeah, a it is. Selection. I have all those filters except for the, I bought the number 25 ND, and I wish I bought the 50. Uh, okay. I think having the 50 and the 25 are awesome because you can stack them, I think, can you? Uh, yeah, typically the filters can just, uh, connect to each other using the threads. Yeah. Yeah. Those are nice. Uh, and he bought the astronomic UHC dash E, which I think is the same as, or very similar to, uh, to the Lumicon UHC anyway. So yeah, pretty much had that same set of, go ahead. Keep reading. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, so he said last Monday night in between clouds, I tested them out on the ring nebula and wow, what a difference it makes from my former filters. Uh, earlier on last week, I finally got my white light sun filter and picked up some uh, Bob's knobs for my secondary mirror. Uh, and yes, it does make collimating a lot easier. And I can certainly um, relate when I used to have my 12 inch mead light bridge. I replaced all of the collimation screws with uh, Bob's knobs. And uh, it was like, that's just a must do because prior to that, I would have to have Allen wrenches and screwdrivers to adjust the collimation. And Bob's knobs, you don't need any tools. You just, you know, there's knobs that you can turn with your hands. So mm-hmm. it's a very worthy upgrade. Uh, so Leonid goes on to say, uh, and I also changed the wheels on my Dob platform as the originals always came off uh, in the pictures. The shorter version is the new and improved version. Uh, besides that, it has been pretty cloudy and rainy out east. Uh, I can't remember if you have traveled out east yet or if you will. Nonetheless, bon voyage. Uh, I have a question for you. Uh, I am looking into getting a final eyepiece in the 20 millimeter range. Uh, and he lists three here, Chris, uh, mm-hmm. a 19 millimeter panoptic, a 17 and a half millimeter Morpheus or the 17 millimeter 92 degree Explorer scientific. And I know which one you would recommend, Chris. <laughs> well, you have to read his next, his next yeah. paragraph here. Yeah. So he says, uh, I have developed a real healthy respect for Explore Scientific eyepieces that I already own. Uh, what do you think? I think all three are good. If one doesn't wear glasses for observing, what is your take on the ES 92 degree? I, yeah, I mean, I think it's fine if you don't wear glasses. I just think that I have to wear glasses. So this, this is the context and for me, as somebody who wears a glass, uh, wears glasses to observe through an eyepiece, um, that 17 millimeter, 92 degrees is worth the expense and, and the weight to get such a wide field of view. If I didn't have to wear glasses to observe, I would look at getting the 100 millimeter or the uh, 100 millimeter. Don't get the 100 millimeter. I would look at getting the 20 millimeter, 100 degree uh, explore scientific or or something similar. Because uh, if you don't uh, wear glasses, you uh, you don't need the extra eye relief, and and you can take advantage of shorter eye relief, which can result in uh, wider fields of view if if the designer uh, takes that into account. So uh, I would look at getting a slightly different uh, eyepiece. I would I would look at the twenty millimeter, and I think it's a little bit less expensive than the seventeen millimeter anyway. That yeah. that's what I would recommend. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Um, so I've had the 19 millimeter panoptic, um, and it's a, it's a really nice eyepiece in that it's small, it's very lightweight, uh, relatively wide field of view, um, certainly nowhere near the 92 or hundred degree eyepieces, but it's uh, very, I, I really enjoy like the 68 degree fields of view. 
Um, the thing though is it, it does not have enough eye relief for me. So that's one of the reasons why I no longer have it. Um, mm -hmm. it just, I wasn't able to take in that full field of view. Um, the Morpheus, it, all of those eyepieces are wonderful. Um, I, I think that that's a great alternative as well. Um, they're fairly well priced. Um, they're sort of mid range. Like they're not, they're not the behemoth that, that, uh, 17 millimeter, 92 degree, uh, ES eyepiece is in terms of weight. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're certainly not as small as like that 19 millimeter panoptic, but the Morpheus has beautiful eye relief, 20 millimeters, very comfortable eyepiece to use. Um, I believe that the barrel, it's an inch and a quarter barrel, but it also has like a two inch sleeve on it. So you can put it in a two inch focuser, even, even though it's an inch and a quarter eyepiece. Um, so, and it also has glow in the dark uh, paint on it. So you can see the, <laughs> like that it's a 17 and a half millimeter at night. Um, so anyway, those, uh, those are both good candidates, but yeah, if, uh, if you're not wearing glasses, I think I would throw one more eyepiece into the consideration list here. And that would be the, uh, Nikon HW, um, from everything I've read, it might be the finest wide field 17 millimeter mm -hmm. eyepiece out there in terms of throughput and contrast and, um, edge sharpness. Uh, but the eye relief I think is a little tight. Um, I've never used it. Um, you know, one of our, uh, one of our friends, Justin Lee, who's been on the show, I think he has the 17, um, and him and I were exchanging some emails about it and the experience that he had with it, I believe at the Oregon star party. And, uh, it just sounds like an absolutely incredible eyepiece that almost defies like some of the, you know, eyepiece standards in that it, it really does provide like those near or, or like maybe not even near, maybe equal to orthoscopic views. Like it, uh, it really separates itself from a lot of the other wide fields from what I've read. Mm. Very cool. Yeah. 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 Those are some neat, uh, neat options. Yeah. I'll be curious to see what he what he goes with. I think, I really think that if it was me, I would, I would look at a hundred degree or, and depending, depending on the eyepiece, maybe they make a nice 24 millimeter as well, but the eye relief isn't so hot on it. It's pretty short, but uh, if you don't wear glasses, 24 millimeters and an 82 degree field is nice. I, I think his scope is F6 or F6 something mm -hmm. that would give a nice exit pupil. So Take, take that into account as well. That's what I would say. Anything else uh, for this show, Shane? We kind of had a couple different topics we hopped around. It's kind of fun. Yeah, no, nothing else, Chris. All right. Well, dear listeners, please subscribe. Do us a favor and share the show with other stargazers you know. You can always send us your show ideas, observations, and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>